Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 221, War with the U.S. Seems Unavoidable. Last time, as the obstacles to a successful attack on Pearl Harbor were being worked out, Yamamoto and his followers convinced others that Operation Z, the attack on Pearl, had to be carried out before Japanese forces pushed into the southeast. Crippling the U.S. naval fleet would give Japan the time it needed to hit, occupy, and then fortify what territory they wanted and needed for resources, as well as building a defense in depth that would hopefully be too costly in lives for the Americans to penetrate. Surely the decadent and therefore soft Americans would never tolerate tens of thousands of deaths just to save Asia from Japanese dominance. But as Napoleon had once called China a sleeping giant that should never be wakened, Tokyo underestimated the effect that revenge would have on the inward-looking Americans, certainly with the worldly FDR at the helm. For those who have argued that FDR did not want war, that didn't matter. War was here. For those who said that FDR did not want war yet, that the United States was still building and developing its resources, that didn't matter either. War was here. For those who say that FDR never wanted to enjoin the war at all, that was not possible, and he must have known that. And yet, on October 12th, Prime Minister Kanoye, it was his 50th birthday, invited his foreign minister, as well as the army, and Navy ministers to meet with him. This downhill path to war had to be stopped, and this the Prime Minister was determined to do. And until recently, he thought he had the backing of the Navy. Just days before his 50th birthday, Kanoye met with the Naval Minister Oikawa, who told him that if he, the Prime Minister, decides not to go to war, that would be fine with the Navy. But during that same meeting, it went on for a while, Oikawa ended by saying, if Kanoye was not willing to lead Japan in the coming war, it would be best for him to resign. Back to the October 12th meeting, his head still spinning from the naval minister's about face, Kanoye decided to use Tojo's trick against him. He told the assembled men, I have no confidence in a war such as this. If we were to start a war, it has to be done by someone 
who believes in it. And with that, he threatened to resign, should the pro-war faction continue. This he knew, or believed, would throw a monkey wrench into the entire process. The Prime Minister's challenge had just been thrown down. Two days later, October 14th, Kanoye met privately with Army Minister Tojo, just before the start of a cabinet meeting. To the Prime Minister's thinking, he was about to give the Army man the second of a one-two punch, the first being his threatening to resign two days ago. But this attack would be delivered subtly. First, the Prime Minister put the Army's shame concerning the China incident on his own shoulders. I am greatly responsible for the China incident. After four years, the incident has not ended. I simply cannot agree to starting yet another great war whose outlook is very vague. In order to make a great leap, we must sometimes concede to greater forces so that we can preserve and nurture our national strength. But this bounced off the razor's hardened exterior. First, he disagreed with the Prime Minister's interpretation. Then he pointed out his leader's pessimism, which in itself was an insult. Then he turned the argument around by saying, yes, Japan has weaknesses, or limitations, like our resources, but we know them and we are working to compensate. Whereas the Americans have weaknesses too, which could be exploited. The Prime Minister tried to salvage his attack by saying the two men had a difference of opinion in their interpretations of the current events. But Tojo responded by saying, no, it was a difference of personality. Again, calling the other man weak, which made the Prime Minister lose face, and thus weakened his argument, his attack. The two men then went on to the cabinet meeting, and there Tojo continued his argument. If Japan gives in to the U.S. and pulls out of French Indochina, the latest of their demands, then it stood to reason that then the U.S. would demand a withdrawal from China, then Manchukuo, and maybe even Korea. Their country would once again become little Japan, not the master of its own fate, and be just one of the Asian countries that was dominated by the arrogant Europeans or Americans. This was intolerable. Then Minister of the Navy Oikawa stepped in by saying that it would no longer support the September 6th Imperial Conference outcome that said diplomacy would be tried first, but upon failing that, war would be considered. This very meeting was one day shy of diplomacy's deadline of being the first option. Tojo finished off his adversary by claiming that the cabinet which had been responsible for the September 6th result, should resign. Then, turning to Kanoye, Tojo demanded, it was time for the Prime Minister to decide if he was going to lead his nation to war or move out of the way for someone else to. Apparently, Kanoye had finally made up his mind. Two days later, October 16th, Kanoye informed an assistant of Emperor Hirohito that he had arranged all the necessary paperwork to resign his position. The emperor and his advisors claimed to be surprised, but no one begged Kanoye 
to stay in his current role. An hour later, at 5 p.m., Hirohito accepted the resignation. As the cabinet was dissolved, Hideke Tojo was packing up to leave the official residence of the army minister. This was on October 17th. But before he could leave, he was summoned to the imperial palace. The emperor wasted no time, besides the ceremonies that had to be conducted. But at 5 p.m., the emperor told Tojo that he was being made the new prime minister, as the general was expecting a tongue-lashing for bringing down Kanoya's government, this promotion caught him completely off guard, to the point where he could not return the traditional response, please let me have a little time to accept the command. As everyone involved knew where Tojo stood in regards to war with the United States, this decision by the emperor begs the question, why? Was not the emperor all but guaranteeing the event he seemed to fear most? But when emotion, in this case shock, is removed and the context is considered, the emperor was not necessarily unbalanced in his thinking. With Kanoye out of the government for the second time, Hirohito's two choices were either Minister of the Army Tojo or Minister of the Navy Oikawa. And as, until recently, the Navy had wanted to avoid war with the United States, this predicament they were in was the doing of the Army. So it made sense to the Emperor and his closest advisor, Marquis Koichi Kido, the Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal, that the Army should be the one to clean it up. But more concretely, Hirohito's belief, or rather hope, was that putting the Army in charge would make them more responsible. It is easy to chide those in power when you have no responsibility for the decisions made. But now, Tojo would have to decide issues and live with the consequences. While Tojo formed his cabinet, Washington leaders met to decide how this change in government in Tokyo should be responded to and dealt with. The essence of the meeting between FDR, Secretary Stimson, General Marshall, Secretary Knox, Secretary Hull, Hopkins, and CNO, Chief of Naval Operations Harold Stark, on October 16th, boiled down to this. War was more than likely coming. But it was vital that Japan made the first move, that the United States was perceived to be the victim. Whether this was from the aggressive economic measures taken by Washington thus far, or to have the majority of Americans supporting them when war came, is unclear. But it was probably both. Of course, this sentiment was conveyed by Admiral Stark to Admiral Kimmel, the Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet, but no specific orders were issued, merely to be on the lookout. Japanese ambassador to the U.S., Namura, informed the new cabinet that he felt it was best for him to step down, along with the previous cabinet. After all, he admitted, he wasn't doing much good in regards to bringing the Americans around to his thinking, and his ideas were not being seriously considered by Tokyo. But Tojo wanted him to stay where he was, so the admiral stayed at his post. 
While Tojo's government was getting itself straightened out, the Navy needed answers as to its allocation of resources, namely Operation Z, the attack on Pearl Harbor, versus Operation Number 1, the attack on Southeast Asia. For the naval planners had estimated that their current number of ships and planes outnumbered the Americans. For now. In as little as two years, if war was to come, that would change. But first Yamamoto wanted to know, was his plan for Operation Z approved? And if so, was he going to get the six carriers he deemed vital to success? To get his way, Yamamoto also stated that if Operation Z was not carried out, or if it failed, then Operation Number 1 would surely fail, as the American Pacific Fleet was like a dagger pointed at Japan's heart. Yamamoto knew that war was coming with the United States, and that a strike at Pearl Harbor was Japan's best hope. Hence, he put himself and his considerable reputation behind Operation Z. Admiral Yamamoto insists that his plan be adopted. I am authorized to state that if it is not, then the commander-in-chief of the combined fleet can no longer be held responsible for the security of the empire. In that case, he will have to resign, and with him, his entire staff. But to lose Yamamoto was unacceptable. But to save face, the Navy agreed to a compromise. Pearl would be hit by the six carriers, but then a number of them were to rush home to participate in the attack in the southeast. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Meanwhile, as Yamamoto obsessed over his attack on Pearl to give his country the longest window of opportunity to seize territory and much-needed resources, the new Prime Minister Hideki Tojo was obsessing over his plans, namely Operation Number 1, which would make Japan the master of East Asia. But even the path to glory has to be organized, and that is what Finance Minister Okinori Kaya was trying to do. In fact, he would not give the green light for any new war, as in paying for it, until his questions were answered. What happens to the resources coming to the main islands, those from occupied territories, but also from countries like the United States, if we go to war with them? What happens to them if we don't? What happens if our diplomatic efforts fail with the U.S.? Does that automatically mean war? To be sure, the previous cabinet tried to answer those very questions, and indeed had spies within Japanese companies based in the United States to help determine the answers. Their report read that the United States' industrial output was 10 to 20 times stronger than Japan's. 
But this made no difference to those in the military who wanted war and who believed their spiritual power would overcome the deficiency. The new cabinet then put out its own report, which stated the previous one was an error. In fact, the U.S. was even more stronger than originally surmised. This caused the new foreign minister, Shigenori Togo, to join Finance Minister Kaya in standing up to the war faction. To them, it didn't matter that Japan would, once again, become a third-rate power, that they would probably lose their possessions in China, Manchuria, maybe even Korea, and the humiliation that it would bring. All that was preferable to being annihilated. This sudden alliance shocked even Prime Minister Tojo, who was only now willing to concede something. So a new proposal was sent to Washington, but the terms were so advantageous to Japan and would not change the status quo for many years that everyone in Tokyo knew it would not be taken seriously. But it was a start. In fact, Tojo was shaken to the point where he spoke to the army representative about changing their current course, which was talking peace to the Americans, as if a deal was only a matter of working out details, while simultaneously preparing to attack U.S. possessions. But to change this tact was no simple matter, not even for the military, which currently ran the country. To say that this was a crisis of conscience would be going too far, but Tojo honestly revered the emperor and demanded that the issues be cleared up by saying, Since the emperor likes to do things openly and above board, I think he will not hear of carrying on with deception. And this line of thought led to the idea, what if Japan officially broke off the talks exactly 30 minutes before the attack on Pearl? Then all conditions would be met. The Japanese could not be accused of a sneak attack, and the Americans in Hawaii would not have the time to defend against it. This mode of thinking led to the mother of all meetings on November 1st, which lasted 17 hours. Tojo started off by saying, we could try for peace, we could let war decide, or we could talk peace while we prepare for war. The civilians in the room wanted to give diplomacy more time and got the military to agree to a November 30th deadline at midnight. But the stumbling block the conversations ran into time and again was that even though the Navy did not want war with the United States, they had their pride. They would not come out and say they knew that defeat was inevitable, only that their chances were unclear, and that if war was to come, it would be better for the Navy to fight now, not in three years' time. When this was combined with the Army, which absolutely refused to leave China due to all their sacrifices, the chance for peace was moot. Not until 1.30 a.m. the next day did the meeting draw to a close. It was decided that Foreign Minister Togo and Ambassador Namura would have until the end of November 
to close a deal with the United States and avoid war. They were to be given two options, and Prime Minister Tojo promised the men in the room he hoped diplomacy would work. He said, Plan B is not a pretext for going to war. I swear to the gods that with this plan, I hope to reach an accommodation with the United States, whatever it takes. And yet, his previous words should not be forgotten, certainly with what came next. On that same day, the marathon meeting ended November 2nd. At 5 p.m., the chief of the Imperial Army General Staff, Sugiyama, and chief of the Imperial Navy General Staff, Nagano, presented themselves to the emperor. With them was their war plan with the United States. They wanted the emperor to be ready to approve it during their next imperial conference, three days from then, on November 5th. Of course, Hirohito was stunned by their request. He went on and on about giving diplomacy a chance. The military men agreed with him. How could they not? But explained that this was a part of the process should the talks not succeed. The three men went round and round, but in time the emperor had the military's views grafted onto himself. It was prudent to prepare. As the emperor would not put up too much resistance, well, enough to scuttle the entire enterprise, the Navy General Staff had determined that X day, the day to launch their attack against the American fleet at Pearl Harbor, would be December 8th. As Tokyo was 19 hours ahead of Pearl and 14 hours ahead of Washington, for the enemy, it would be December 7th. The Navy knew it had to move on this assault, as the country's oil reserves were already shrinking, with what little was coming in from the West not to mention the U.S. naval presence in the Philippines was growing, while the sea lanes the attacking fleet would travel was becoming more harsh with winter closing in. To wait any longer would force a postponement of Operation Number 1, and the oil of the Dutch East Indies could not come under Japanese control soon enough. November 2nd was propitious for two other reasons for the Japanese. Rear Admiral Matomi Yugaki, representing the combined fleet, was asked by the Army and Navy for an official blessing as the Army and Navy had finally agreed upon their course of action, war with the United States. The Admiral wrote in his diary that night, With this telegram, we can see that they have made up their minds. At last. The final reason was that those ships which would comprise Operation Hawaii were finally in place, gathered at Arike Bay. From there, they would travel north before turning east to avoid all western traffic. On November 3rd at 1.30 p.m., Admiral Nagumo, commander-in-chief of the 1st Air Fleet, the country's main aircraft carrier force, gathered his commanders and told them, judging from the diplomatic situation, war with the United States seems unavoidable. In that event, we plan to attack the American fleet in Hawaii. That same day, November 3rd, Foreign Minister Togo sent to Ambassador Namura 
the details of plan A with the instructions. This time we are showing the limit of our friendship. This time we are making our last possible bargain. This was followed up with, I want you in as indecisive yet as pleasant language as possible to euphemism to try to impart to them the effect that unlimited occupation in China does not mean perpetual occupation, as if that was to somehow please the Americans. However, thanks to magic, the White House had this message in their hands almost as soon as Nomura did. Hence, the Americans would know that whatever they were about to be told was worthless. But was that the same thing as war? The Japanese have a saying, give them soup, but no fish. Was Japan just delaying again? After all, they had their possessions on the Asian mainland. Time was on their side in that regard. But as Admiral Stark, CNO, Chief of Naval Operations, told his Pacific commanders, including Admiral Husband Kimmel, on November 4th, two irreconcilable policies cannot go on forever, particularly if one party cannot live with the setup, which, ironically, described both the Empire of Japan and the United States. Hey everyone, Ray here. So I know it's been a while, so I just wanted to thank some people for some uh, for supporting the show. And uh, after I do this, I have a little story to tell you to catch you up on stuff going behind the scenes. So for those of you who have joined uh, the membership, who are getting two extra episodes a month, uh, there's Timothy B. in Taunton, Massachusetts, Nadav H. in Caulfield, North Australia, Peter M. from Malvern, Australia, Reese C. Isaacs, Australia, Capital Territory, Jim S., Richardson, Texas, Andrew M., Rising Sun, Indiana, cool name, uh, Ed Dargo, uh, L., I'm sorry, L. Dargo, I don't know where you're from, Anton L. from, here we go, Uppsala, Sweden, Jordan R. from Corsicana, Texas, William M. from Lafayette, Louisiana. I was there recently. Uh, Maria del Carmen Gonzalez, and it keeps going, uh, from Mexico. Um, Voltec K. from Derry, New Hampshire, if I pronounce that wrong, and I'm sure I did, I apologize. D. Roderick from Western Australia. James D. Dickie S. from Sandersville, Georgia. Matthew C. from Syracuse, New York. Brett A. from Phoenix, Arizona. Brandon D. from Gilbert, Arizona. Paul P. from Warren, Rhode Island, uh, Jaden G. from Alice, Texas, and for those who have made donations, uh, John J. F. from Ontario, Canada, Harry B. from Falsta, Australia, Brian R., uh, for those who bought Churchill Mug, Ian F. from Belborn, New York, Victor W., thank you, Victor, it was nice uh, emailing with you, Philip N., uh, also bought a mug, as far as those, as far as those who have bought CDs, uh, Lucy M. Drawer A. I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, so I just want to thank all those people for um, supporting the show. And the reason um, it's important to me, and you probably noticed when this year, when this calendar year started, I was doing a lot more episodes. It's kind of faded away, but I'm getting back. What happened was the company that I am used 
to get me ads uh, has had some issues. So I dropped them, which means the next couple of issues, episodes will not have ads in them. Great for you. Not so great for me. This is my full-time job now. Um, so I'm in transition. I've gotten with a new company, but these things take time. So this is just me putting this out there as quickly as I can and hopefully as pain, painlessly as I can. Um, if you wanted to support the show, now would be the time to do it. If you wanted to make a donation, uh, if you wanted to buy, get into the membership and get two extra episodes a month, if you wanted to buy a Churchill or uh, FDR mug, anything like that would be greatly appreciated. Um, uh, when I hear this kind of stuff on podcasts, I don't like it, so I'm going to keep it nice and short. Um, so for PayPal, it's just the podcast at gmail.com uh, email address. You can go on the website and buy a mug, uh, buy CDs. If you live outside the United States, please do not buy a mug without emailing me first to that same email address, so that way I can get you a rate and you'll know what the uh, what the final payment's going to be. So for those of you who've been putting up with me for the last couple of months as things have slowed down, I apologize, but we're getting back into the swing. The ads will come when they come. Let's just keep the story going. And, um, and so we can get back to what's going on in Russia as well. So again, just thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening. Thanks for supporting the show. And I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. Take care, everyone. And now a game of commercial chicken brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long flow can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.